0: When you think of Mossad, does a humanitarian mission deep, deep behind enemy lines spring to mind? That's exactly what they were employed to do when Israel's new Prime Minister gave a simple order. Bring me the Jews of Ethiopia. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. The Mossad had built up an unrivaled reputation for inventiveness. But for all its ingenuity and long record of espionage, spying or gathering intelligence, this was nothing to do with that. The Netflix movie is one thing. The book, Red Sea Spies, by the BBC's online Middle East editor Rafi Berg, is quite another. It's a faithful chronicle of faithful people, brought home to Israel, and the extraordinary efforts and risks taken to do so. The common link between Rafi's book and the Netflix movie is the Mossad commander... Who daily risked his life to organize, emancipate, and arrange the exodus of thousands upon thousands of Ethiopian Jews from the horrible conditions of Sudanese refugee camps on foot, by truck, boat, and audacious giant planes?
1: Yeah, well, look, this was the most you know, Chutzpah, part of the operation to, to, to penetrate the, the Sudanese airspace 700 kilometers inside the country. But it was also
0: a partnership between the State of Israel and Ethiopian Jewry. Danny needed the full cooperation of black Jews to do covert work he couldn't do inside those terrible camps. You'll hear about his brotherhood with Faraday Aklum and Zimna Barhane. Ethiopian Jews who became Mossad comrades.
1: Yeah, I wanted to tell you that because this is something I know, I think I, I never told anybody.
0: Danny, this is very, very beautiful, and I <laughs> this is really going to be uh, an extraordinary interview. The detail and accuracy of the book wouldn't have been possible without Danny, and with Rafi's generous help, Danny, the founder and Mossad commander of Operation Brothers between 1978 and 1983 has granted me this interview, on condition his full identity isn't revealed.
2: When I first met him, which was uh, very cloak and dagger, actually, it was he, he chose to meet me, actually, uh, after my name had been brought to his attention. He asked me to meet him at Charles de Gaulle Airport, right. <laughs> of all places. And um, we met at the appointed time, and he, was, he looked so unassuming. I had mm. to wonder to myself, can this really be... The Mossad commander. He's a very modest guy, but remarkable. He's he's charismatic. He is he's brilliant. He's he's intelligent. He's he's funny. He's witty. But he's also very very smart. It's perfectly clear once you get to know this guy that if anybody is going to be able to pull off the impossible, Dan is your man.
0: Now, to my knowledge. He's spoken just once on a smartphone camera in Spanish, and if you were lucky enough to have been at one of three synagogue talks in London earlier in twenty twenty you're extremely fortunate. You witnessed a hero he's been called the African Oscar Schindler, but his inventiveness and courage extends even beyond that to parallels with both Sir Nicholas Winton and Raoul Wallenberg. It was a time of great change in Israel. After losing eight elections, Menachem Begin was finally elected prime minister in 1977. His peace deal with Anwar Sadat of Egypt still stands to this day, and as Sinai was being prepared for handback as part of that, there was the 82 Lebanon War. Suddenly in 1982, Israel was plunged into war in Lebanon. More than once, you left your posting in Sudan to perform your national service, your annual miluim. So you motorbiked up the country up to Israel on your Kawasaki to join your elite paratrooping unit to fight intensively against Syrian forces. You fought in a war north of Israel, literally days after your humanitarian mission in Sudan. How does a man deal with that psychologically?
1: (laughs) When you, when you say it, it looks like this guy is crazy.
0: It sounds unbelievable.
1: Well, but that, that's very Israeli, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> We're all here as Jews because at some point, our ancestors decided to make the choice to remain or become one. And with Rafi Berg narrating the detail and Danny's masterful recall of events, here it is, the story of Ethiopian Jewish exodus to the land of Jerusalem, Mossad style.
3: From Great Britain, via Israel to the world, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends, spread the word, and subscribe now.
0: The true drama of this excellent read,
2: not just in its detailed chronicle, but actually it's in its absolute truth. This all happened. That's right. It really is one of those cases where fact is stranger than fiction. Uh, this is a, a beautiful story. It's, uh, in my 25 years of journalism, I've really not come across anything quite like it.
0: Has it changed the trajectory of your journalism from now on? I mean, other stories seem piffling compared to this as you move on.
2: Well, one question I get asked quite a lot is, what am I going to be writing about next? <laughs> and this really has set the bar very, very high. I'd love to write another book, but it's going to be a question of finding the right story to follow on from this.
0: Now, it's important to lay down some ground rules here. This is not a story of rescue. That's the last time you'll hear the word rescue on this podcast. And they are not falashers, as Ethiopian Jews seem to be referred to again and again when they became news in the late 1970s.
2: Yeah, that's right. This is a very important point, and it's it's a technicality which I learned early on when I was gathering for this book. So the the story... Broadly speaking, is the coming to Israel of Ethiopian Jews. Uh, there's a common perception that Israel rescued the Ethiopian Jews. But the fact of the matter is, none of this would have happened without the determination of the Ethiopian Jews themselves. They were as big a part in getting their community to Israel as were the Mossad and the state of Israel. It really was an operation of two communities working towards a common goal.
0: So let's start with the Israeli part, the white Jews. (laughs) There was a sea change in Israeli politics which made all of this really possible, and that was Menachem Begin's election. Prime Minister from 1977, after losing eight successive elections, it was him who said, get me the Jews of Ethiopia.
2: None of this would have really been possible without the coming to power of Menachem Begin. He's a fascinating character, but you're right, a sea change happened in 1977. That's quite recently, 1977, when Menachem Begin was the first person to give the order to the then head of the Mossad, bring me the Jews of Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopian Jews have been around as long as other Jews all over the world but for centuries they were not known about and it was only as late as the 1970s that the state of Israel properly recognised them as real Jews even though the Ethiopian Jews themselves celebrated the formation of the state of Israel in 1948 they weren't allowed to settle there
0: tell me about the incredible contribution to this mission of Menachem Begin, when he gave Mossad a simple command, bring me the Jews of Ethiopia.
1: Yeah, exact, exactly. Those were the words. That's exactly how the chief of the Mossad of the time, uh, Itzhak Kofi, uh, told us that the, those were the exact words. And um, I think one of, uh, Begin was the, He he was not uh, concerned by the origin of uh, the tribes of Israel. For him, I think, he considered every Jew from anywhere, even from the remotest places, and even black uh, Jews, to be uh, equal as any other Jew. Uh, He learned about the attitude that the government uh, of Israel and and actually the rabbinical authorities had uh, had towards the uh, Jewish uh, community in in Ethiopia, uh, which was really um, unacceptable. At the time, nobody really was concerned, because very few people knew about the existence of these uh, people in Ethiopia, because of the treatment that they got, and the fact that they were not recognized as Jews. they couldn't uh, immigrate under the law of return, and they only there were some people who were um, uh, demonstrating and protesting, but they were too uh, too few, and they didn't have the the political uh, leverage. Begin uh, as soon as he learned about that, he immediately uh, said that's unjustified and it's uh, unfair, and so he gave the order.
0: He really was a remarkable man—not just a patriot for Israel, but a patriot for Jews from yes. everywhere. We we salute yeah. Menachem Begin as one of the truly great Israelis of the first seventy-two years.
1: I agree with you. Yes, totally. I met him. I met him twice. You know, I was invited by my chief to report directly to the prime minister about what was going on in Sudan. So I had the opportunity of, uh, of feeling um, how he um, thought about these people and that he was really concerned. It was nothing political in it. It was really a, a, the, the guarantee that we should have one towards the other. We have to be responsible for each other. And that, that was his attitude. Everyone that, was, that participated in this operation from the army and Mossad That's how how we felt, you know. So Begin's own history
0: of Holocaust survival, faith in every Jewish person, his determination never to harm another Jew in battle. I read of so many tensions between Jews during independence that actually it's no surprise that he should be the man.
2: He's known, uh, broadly speaking, as a tough guy. This is the guy from the Irgun. This is a guy who fought... For the independence of the state of Israel. But he was also a tremendous humanitarian. His first act, his very first act on the day that he took office as prime minister was to allow to settle in Israel Vietnamese boat people, non-Jewish refugees. That was what was important to him. So by extension, he was determined to protect Jewish people anywhere in the world who were facing grave danger. And at that time, the Jews of Ethiopia were amongst the most threatened Jewish communities on the planet. Now, the Ethiopian Jews, Beta Yisrael, they lived in
0: isolation for centuries. They'd never seen television. They never cooked modern food. They'd never even heard a record with music from somewhere else. They'd never even seen the sea before. These were land-based, desert-based, isolated people. And more than that their religion had also been isolated to the point where they didn't believe...
2: They didn't believe that we existed, that there were white Jews, that that's, they were just the only Jews in the whole wide world. That's right. The first contact that was had between Ethiopian Jews and a foreign person was in the late 1800s. They were very disinterested in him. And when he told them that he was Jewish, they didn't believe him because... They thought the, the only surviving Jews in the world were black Jews, that there couldn't be any such thing as a white Jew. They were isolated. They lived in the highlands of Ethiopia. Can you imagine what that was like in the 1800s? We, you know, we talk about modernity these days, but they were even separated from the uh, the provinces, the the, the heart of, uh, of, of activity yeah. in towns and cities in Ethiopia. They lived a, a very, very basic life. Uh, all they knew was was walking. Uh, they had donkeys, but they didn't have electricity and communication. There was no such thing apart from you need to speak to somebody. You walk to the next village and have a word. So if we're talking about migration, well, uh, that was pretty much unheard of. Uh, but the one thing that sustained Ethiopian Jews for millennia was a generational longing to return to the land of Israel. They didn't call it the land of Israel, they refer to it as the land of Jerusalem. They knew that their forefathers had come from the land of Israel, the land of Jerusalem, and every single generation they believed that theirs would be the one to return.
0: I find the revelation, uh, the bad news, that they mourned and cried at the idea that the Romans had ransacked Jerusalem and that uh, mosques had been built on top of the temples uh, as very, very moving. They, 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 they couldn't believe that their golden Medina uh, had been ransacked and destroyed. They cried, they mourned.
2: That's right. There it was is, news to them in the 1880s. That's correct. It's astonishing to think uh, that that was actually the case. They didn't know that the temple, the second temple, had been destroyed. And they said so. They believed that the land was still occupied by the Romans.
0: So let's introduce Danny to this story. He is a Mossad agent. He is in charge of making Menachem Begin's simple instruction come to fruition.
2: He was given the order to go to Sudan and find one man who was a fugitive. Now, the man we're talking about was an Ethiopian Jew. He was the first Ethiopian Jew to surface in Sudan. Now picture your geography, Ethiopia and Sudan, the neighbouring countries. What Faraday had done was walk from his village in Ethiopia to Sudan. And this is Faraday Aklum. Beg your pardon, his name's Faraday Aklum. What Faraday Aklum had done was walk from his village in Ethiopia to Sudan. He was a wanted man in Ethiopia, so he was fleeing from being caught by the authorities. He had some contacts among Jewish aid agencies and he sent a cryptic letter asking for help. That letter arrived on Danny's desk and Danny was dispatched to go and find Faraday Klum, and that is really where this entire story starts. <laughs> Are you playing catch-up with
0: Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about
3: Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a a fertility rate problem in in, in Israel. Um, For instance, there there is in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the debts that the country needs call upon in order to unite its people.
0: And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva.
3: The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, known to some of the woke revolution, where there's kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a, a journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. KO FI dot com, Slash Johnny Gould.
0: So, how did you become involved in this particular project, Operation Brothers?
1: Well, you know sometimes you need to be uh, on the good side of, of luck. I had the luck and maybe the privilege of being at the right place at the right time. I, I was dealing with Africa and I was in charge of uh, East Africa, Africa in general, but I, I, I already had some experience when it reached the operating level. It was my turn to to be there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I suppose, on that basis, Danny, on the mission, everyone knew they were performing a huge act of historic proportions. It's the story of a secret agency performing a humanitarian mission behind yeah. enemy lines. There's just yeah. nothing like this in the world.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you, you're, uh, there's, a, there's a difference when you're doing it, actually, and you're living it. And then you look at back at it, to it uh, with the perspective of, of, of some years. It's, it's very different. Though. Well, I think that wh- while we were doing it, of course, we had the feeling. I personally, I knew that what, I was doing something that was uh, realizing the, the, the dream of uh, the return to Zion. And uh, I was part of it. I, I didn't really think every day that I was doing some heroic act or something. This was, you know, first of all, this is uh, this is what we do, among other things. We also operate in, in dangerous places, and that's what we are trained for. And uh, you don't really think of yourself of being a, a special. You might have one. Sometimes you might ask yourself, what the hell am I doing here? And then when you ask yourself the question is because something is happening, something not good is happening, but then you you, you actually can answer yourself and saying, Okay, I'm doing this because this is these are my brothers, and then and and this is what I have to do. Faraday, he actually was born in the region of Tigray but when he left ethiopia he was living in the area of gondar because he married a girl from that area so he walked not from his own village but from his wife's village which is approximately half half the distance when he walked when he went from ethiopia to sudan he uh, first of all he didn't uh, uh, he didn't identify himself as a jew and because there were hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands of people uh, leaving Ethiopia and Eritrea and all that area, walking towards the Sudan because they, went, they wanted to reach the refugee camps. So he actually it was not uh, you know, isolated or he was not uh, um, pointed out as being Jewish or something. He was another Ethiopian walking there. With all the dangers, you know, it was a very dangerous walk for everyone. Because uh, Ethiopia at the time was in a... Uh, they, they were shooting everywhere and, they, they, and there was drought, so people were very... Uh, they would attack, they would rob, they would do anything, you know, to, to be able to eat something. So it was very dangerous. Yeah.
0: And so they tried to come together and that required a building of trust. As well, and Faraday, who could fit into a refugee camp in a way that Danny couldn't because obviously he was a white man, to get Aklum to go to a number of specifically Jewish villages in Ethiopia, try to spirit those Jews who are not any different looking from other Ethiopian people out of the appalling conditions of Sudanese refugee camps having got them to go and walk hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles over mountains and through streams and in danger of smugglers and all sorts of other soldiers to this terrible refugee camp where they would be spirited out and go on on another perilous journey.
2: Where they ended up in the refugee camps in Sudan was even worse than the conditions, much worse than the conditions that they left behind in Ethiopia. The trek that they had to undertake to get from northern Ethiopia to Sudan was absolutely appalling. They had to go across rivers, climb mountains, uh, avoid bandits, uh, avoid being attacked and killed by wild animals, and then, at the end of it, cross deserts in 50-degree heat to get across the border. Many of them died en route. About 10%, 10% of all the Ethiopians who left on foot perished.
0: To be a white man in a black African country, you would stand out more than anywhere else. And this is where the incredible Faraday Ahlum comes in. He was an Ethiopian Jew who walked from his village to the Sudanese refugee camp. And this proved that it was possible for isolated Ethiopian Jews to make a long and perilous journey possibly to the homeland.
1: As a white man, it depends on which area, because in the capital, in Khartoum, uh, there was a white community, you know, the uh, embassy people and the people who came to teach some agriculture and other things. So in in Khartoum, it was not especially, especially, uh, uh, you know, uh, to be a white man was nothing special. But once you leave Khartoum, uh, when I went to the area of the refugee camps, uh, at the time, um, there were no white people because the United uh, uh, Nations High Commissioner for Refugees um, were actually afraid to send their own personnel, so they used to employ uh, Sudanese uh, people. And uh, later on, they the one or two guys, uh, white guys, came also to to be in the area.
0: Just give me an idea of how he's viewed in Israel today?
1: Well, look, there were a, a number of Ethiopian Jews that had the leadership and the courage and the uh, the dream to, to uh, realize the dream of uh, coming back to Zion, to Jerusalem. And he was the first one, but after him, there were several others that replaced him because they the time-lapse that they uh, they, that he, they could operate in, in Sudan was relatively short. So uh, Faraday was about 18 months, and then there was another guy whose name is Zimna Berhanu, who was uh, 10 months, approximately. And then there was another guy called Dani Asmani, who was also seven, eight months. And every one of those were my partners. In, 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 all, the, in all the activity, that was before, you know, the, the famous uh, diving resort in the, in the Red Sea. I began working with the Ferde in Sudan in January 1979. Now, he and some others are considered as uh, heroes by the Ethiopian Jewish community and by those of the Israeli community that uh, got to know them and work with them before Sudan, in Sudan and after Sudan. because the guy like Zimna Berhano, who replaced Faraday in Sudan. He came to Israel already at the age of 16, 17, the 1950s to learn Hebrew and the Torah, and then went back to Ethiopia to teach. And he was, all his life, he was uh, working either teaching or trying to smuggle Jews out of Ethiopia. And when he came, uh, finally, He made his aliyah, he served in the army, and he came to Sudan as an Israeli already, and was recruited to the Mossad, and was a Mossad member, and that's how he worked with us in Sudan, and then went back to take care of the the integration of the Ethiopian Jews in Israel. And the threat to the Jews
0: was very, very sudden indeed. Ethiopia had been a friend of Israel, but then suddenly there'd been a revolution of hard-left Marxists. So the threat of murder or conversion to Christianity meant it really was now or never.
2: The regime was not friendly. The new regime was not friendly towards the Jews. Uh, one of the governors there was appallingly the anti-Semitic, made life very difficult. But for the Jews, it wasn't a question of escaping hardships in Ethiopia. It was a question of reaching a goal. And that goal was to get to the land of Jerusalem. They didn't leave Ethiopia because of the civil war or mm. because of the of repression. They left because they learned that a gateway lay ahead in Sudan, a way to get to Israel.
0: Now, some of the Jews were officially stamped out as refugees from Sudan to a host of European countries. If only the whole process had been as simple as that.
2: Well, that was not simple by any stretch of the imagination. It was carried out, and they were flown out from Khartoum Airport. But that was a very difficult process, and they were passed off as non-Jewish refugees. Yeah. Had they been stopped at the airport, they would have been arrested and never heard of again. But it didn't end there, because more and more Ethiopians were following this Route they'd heard about Sudan. this amazing group of white Jews that's from right. Israel, that's from Jerusalem. Right. That's right. Words had got back from mouth to mouth, from village to village. And more and more Ethiopians got up and left their homes where they'd lived for centuries. So much so that the volume of Ethiopian Jews wanting to get out of Sudan was no longer possible to do it through Khartoum Airport. So the Israelis had to look for another solution. And that's where the Red Sea comes into the story. Indeed.
0: Now, there were a number of different ways to smuggle Jews out of the camps, out of Ethiopia, by legal humanitarian means, through passports, where you photographed up to 15 people as one family in one photograph, with one stamp, which you managed to get control of, although you had to keep the fact that they were Jews secret. And the other way was by boat from the coast, that journey from the refugee camp's Was grueling and dangerous, and this is the story of Arus, the diving resort and hotel.
1: Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, Yes, well, uh, you know, when we decided to um, to change the the, the, actually the direction of uh, how we evacuated the, the, the Jews from Khartoum to the Red Sea coast. It doubled. It doubled more than doubled the distance from 400 uh, kilometers to 900. So we couldn't uh, we couldn't do it in one night. And then, uh, one of the things that I learned very soon when I arrived to Sudan is that in order to survive all this uh, traveling with uh, with Ethiopian Jews, we had to work. Uh, only by night. And uh, you cannot do 900 kilometers in one night. You can do 400. But 900, uh, we had to split into two nights. And uh, during the day in between, we, um, we just uh, hid in the desert. And okay, we also rested and we fed the people and the water and so on. But uh, yes, the trip was uh, not easy.
0: And the actual resort, once you got there, actually functioned as a real holiday resort. You advertised it around the world as such. And though you never quite made money because it was an expensive mission, it did wash its face. (laughs) You did have positive revenue coming into uh, this business. Exactly. Yeah, well,
1: there were, you know, there were uh, um, ups and downs. Uh, but uh, I think in the third, we operated that village almost five years, and in the third year, I think we earned as much as we paid rent, the annual rent. That's incredible. Or a, a little bit more even. Uh, so yeah, there was, uh, but there were times when there was nobody there, and we had to. Uh, we had to appeal for the elder generation in the office, uh, those who were already retired, to come as tourists and stay uh, in the resort so that we would show some activity. So we had some retirees uh, coming there. They didn't, uh, they didn't dive. <laughs> but they enjoyed very, they enjoyed very much the, the weather and the sea and the whiskey and the so on and so on. The thing
0: about this perilous journey uh, on its many many routes is that many of the Ethiopians we've discussed are how they are, you know, new to almost every experience on the journey. Every time they get out of a truck or emerge from a village or you get off a helicopter, they kiss the ground, they think they've arrived in Israel, only to be told, no, mate, it's another two thousand kilometers.
2: Yeah. Uh you're correct. They there's there's a beautiful story of one elderly Ethiopian Jew who was amongst those who did arrive in Israel, and when he landed, uh, he was seen to ingest, to take mouthfuls of soil, and he was he was stopped and asked why. What, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? And he said, "I always made a vow that if I ever made it to Israel, I would I would eat the land." And that's exactly what it's he did. Beautiful. I mean, really, it's it's just it's beautiful. I'm glad they stopped him though. I must say.
0: <laughs> as well as those official routes, a truly brazen, plain sight plan. A resort hotel where European tourists or local dignitaries from the uh, Sudanese elite could go and have a holiday and the Mossad agents could look after
2: them during the day and then get smuggling at night. Danny stumbled across what was at that time an abandoned resort. It had been previously uh, run as holiday village, but it was shut down in the 1970s. He had the idea there and then to turn it into a Club med star resort run by the Mossad, and he arranged for this to happen under the noses of the Sudanese authorities, who certainly didn't know that he was from the Mossad. The Mossad agents who operated at this resort, the name of the resort was Arous, they operated as diving instructors and staff catering for the guests by day, and at night time, they would go off and carry out the people smuggling operations in the desert. It was absolutely extraordinary.
1: We were arrested. Some of us were arrested. Some of us were shot at. We, we had a lot of um, encounters uh, with the local uh, secret service and army and police, but nobody was harmed.
0: Which brings us on to the idea that your mortal reality was brought so many times, more than once you expected to die you thought Sudanese security agents were going to shoot you in the back when you just walked through them do you you think you're protected by a higher power or or some reason to finish your people's mission to make sure that Operation Brothers was completed in your five years and then beyond
1: look uh, now you get me into a situation where you're a my my personal beliefs, you know, <laughs> I, I believe I believe that uh, there is a creator, you know, and that's why I say kaddish. Uh, and I believe that there is really there is a God, but I finally I find it difficult to believe that he would uh, he would care about any one uh, person in particular, and so well. You know, you can you can believe in mystics and you can believe that uh, you're doing something and uh, he's looking uh, from upstairs and saying, protecting you, but I would say that uh, uh, you can believe it after the fact, not before. I mean, you cannot go and do something with the belief that you are protected. You know, you do what you have to do. And- if you're protected okay if you're not protected then uh, bad luck now the
0: thing about danny and so many of the mossad agents is of course they are new olim to israel or indeed people who may have been born in israel but of parents who are very much from all corners of the earth in his case he was born in uruguay um but his grandparents were french so he was a latin american fluent spanish speaker. He was a fluent French speaker, of course he spoke Ivrit, Hebrew, but he spoke all sorts of other languages and probably looked like a, a white European to, to any other white European.
2: When I first met him, which was uh, very cloak and dagger actually, it was he, he chose to meet me actually uh, after my name had been brought to his attention, he asked me to meet him at Charles de Gaulle airport, right. of <laughs> all places. And, um, we met at the appointed time, and he was he looked so unassuming. I had yeah. to wonder to myself, "Can this really be the Mossad commander? he's a very modest guy, but remarkable he's he's charismatic he is he's brilliant he's he's intelligent he's he's funny he's witty, but he's also very, very smart. It's perfectly clear, once you get to know this guy, that if anybody is going to be able to pull off the impossible, Dan is your man.
0: Now, it never has such a mission for humanitarian reasons only, and exclusively, ever been hatched by any country, let alone the Secret Service, who really weren't intended to be a humanitarian organisation.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, just think about it. What do we know the Mossad for? We associate them with assassinations, uh, plots, uh, espionage. But this event was nothing of the kind, and it was new to the Mossad. They weren't set up to, uh, as a humanitarian agency, but that is exactly what they carried out in this case. And as you said, there's no other foreign intelligence agency that's done anything similar to it before or since that we know of.
0: Now, in the time we have to do this interview, we can't possibly cover every twist and turn. There's one every one and a half pages in the book. But just like the movie, which is loosely based only on the events, as opposed to your book, which is that faithful chronicle. If the agents had been caught by the Sudanese, the Ben Kintley character in real life would have uh, said that all of you agents would be hanged from cranes.
2: Yes, that was corroborated to me by one of the agents themselves who said that that is exactly what they were told in Israel at the Mossad HQ before they went off to carry out this operation.
1: Just for the record, there's not one person in this group that I would have chosen for this type of mission. And you're all too reckless. The government has killed hundreds of families. Many more will die if something is not done. What do you know about what's happening in Ethiopia? It's
3: another bloody genocide, but nobody gives a shit because it's in Africa. Well, your
2: prime minister decided to give a shit. The Red Sea Diving Resort. It's a hotel we can use to smuggle the refugees through Sudan to Israel. So let's be very clear. If this goes wrong,
1: you'll all be hanging from cranes.
2: So, yeah, the operation was fantastical and it was a, it's a, a great gig to get. <laughs> a lot of the time was spent running the holiday resort, but it was all so deadly. Mm. They knew that if they were caught, it was a one-way ticket, it was a suicide mission in effect.
0: Now, all of this is in the backdrop of Israel handing back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt as part of the Begin Sadat peace deal. The threat that they might even lose the diving school as a listening station by request of Ariel Sharon was also a very real danger. And young Danny fronted this giant of the military, Ariel Sharon. Go on, spit it out. Whatever you got to say, young man, this guy... Danny you know brave guy and um, you know fended off all
2: sorts of dangers he didn't mind standing up to authority and that's one of the reasons why the his his superior in the Mossad chose him for the job because he knew that Danny is this kind of guy who could really think out of the box and If there was an instruction that he didn't think was right, he'd stand up and challenge it. And that was the kind of calibre of person you need to carry out this kind of mission. Nothing of its kind which had been attempted before.
0: Ariel Sharon said, didn't he, that uh, if you're going to rise up uh, the military in Israel into the Mossad, you've got to have two yellow cards already or a red card you know he doesn't want someone who thinks in the box he wants sort of people who don't always take the rules that's
2: right he didn't always want yes men so he respected danny in this in in this particular incident for standing up to him
0: former prime minister ariel sharon who wanted your arus diving resort as a listening station to replace posts in the sinai the background to that at the time was that israel was about to hand back the sinai peninsula to Egypt, and uh, you were a young man, this was a a giant of a man, maybe two decades older than you. Come on, tell me, man, what do you want to say? Uh, But you weren't (laughs)
1: frightened of him. Yeah, uh, look, uh, he was a paratroopers officer, and I was a paratroopers officer. And, uh, you know, uh, there is some... You learn learn to... um, to say what you have in your mind this also the, the style of the IDF of the Israeli uh, army of Tzahal, you um, you have to say what you think if you feel that something that is going to happen or sometimes an order that is given i'm not i'm not talking about a battle situation you know in a battle situation you don't argue with orders you but in a you know you're sitting around the table and the the, the the guy, it's true, he's older than me. is uh, uh, you know is the de- defense minister, and so on and so on. But he is going in the wrong direction, in my opinion. So um, you know, I, I don't have any problems in saying that to him. And the fact is that when he heard what I said, he immediately withdrew from that plan. And that's not because you know he was frightened or something. He just was a, um, you know, Al Charon was a very practical man. He was a very um, logical man also. He, the logic, he, he understood the logic, and so he changed, I mean, he immediately withdrew from that idea. And I
2: have to say, one of the things which recurs again and again throughout this story is the number of times that it could have been scuppered, mm-hmm. Ariel Sharon. Wanting to take control of the Arus village for an entirely different person could have entered the mission there and then. And it's one of a number of occasions where the success of the mission rested on a knife edge. Something kept this mission going right to this dramatic conclusion. But
0: these long and monotonous journeys of 1,500 miles all the time, they took a the toll on the agents. They had to drive through guarded roadblocks, which could have ended destroying the entire mission. There was an incident where one of the guards nearly lifted the tarpaulin where scores of Jews were hidden underneath. And it would have been at that point that the Mossad agents would have opened fire
2: on the guards, which would have caused... Well, it's a bit more serious than that, even. Right. They wouldn't have opened fire because... The rule was never to carry arms. And there's a simple reason for that. If they were stopped at any time and Sudanese soldiers found that there were weapons in the vehicle, then that would have blown their cover. So they were unarmed at all, t- at all times. But these are men who knew hand-to-hand combat. Danny said to me during that particular incident when the Sudanese commander almost exposed the Jews that he gave a nod to his colleagues that... If the Jews are uncovered, we're going to take out all the soldiers who are standing in front of us right now, pointing their guns at us. And I said to him, you you could do that. They're heavily armed and you've you've just got your hands. He said, yeah, we could have done it. It would have ended the operation and we would have escaped. We would have gone across the border into Egypt. But something intervened and they didn't need to take that course of action.
0: Every time you reached a checkpoint, and there are many, many examples in Rafi's book about that, your senses were heightened. There was one moment where soldiers were about to lift the tarpaulin, where you were hiding scores and scores of Ethiopian Jews, unarmed yeah. against a number of Sudanese control check uh, sort of officers you thought at that moment you're going to have to take them out but you didn't have any weapons on you how would you take on armed <coughs> men and deal with them krav maga
1: yeah, probably <laughs> <laughs> no and then there is also the um, there is also the effect of surprise you know that that's not they would not expect unarmed white people to attack them and um, and yes, well, we we knew how to uh, perform in this type of situation. Um, I don't know how. maybe we would have had casualties also, you know, anything can happen, but uh, those are things that you have to consider sometimes, uh, the only way, and I also I tried always to avoid uh, any um any situation where violence was applied by us, including you know when there was shooting and some things like that, because for my 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 main concern was that this operation has to continue, and if we get into a situation where we are eliminating local people, uh, it doesn't go unnoticed. You know, it leaves people uh, they start looking for the what happened, and then, you know that heightens it their their uh, state of uh, alert, and uh, we don't want that situation Indeed. but you you have to, you, have to uh, you know it's part of your arsenal. You, you need to know how, how to do it, and if, if if the situation arises and there is no other choice, then uh, you have to be able to do it.
0: And your elaborate plans could have been exposed by smugglers, Sudanese soldiers, security agents, even plans going wrong, other refugees, Christian ones, Muslim ones, outing the Jews for their identity. Yes,
1: Uh, that's true. Everything you said is true.
0: One thing that Rafi is very intensive in communicating is... The practice, the practice, the practice, who's in charge where, what the Israeli Navy did on water, what you were responsible for on land. And then the airlifts over and over and over again, practicing with huge planes flying in darkness, making sure the lights are switched off, making sure that the ground was strong enough to withstand an airplane landing in the dark. Practice, 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 over and over again. It was a success, although there were very, very chaotic moments as well.
1: Yeah, well, look, this was the most chutzpah, you know, chutzpah. Part of the operation uh, to to penetrate uh, the Sudanese airspace 700 kilometers inside the country. That, uh, you know, that uh, demanded a lot of guts. From the pilots, then because they they flew very low uh, in order to avoid uh, all kinds of radars and so on, and um, uh, you know Sudan uh, they had an air force. They had some uh, even uh, fight, fighter planes, uh, maybe not uh, the latest generation, but uh, good enough to to intercept uh, these huge uh, cargo planes Hercules from the Israeli air force were like sitting sit ducks, you know. Uh, they don't have any defense, and, uh, and also they had the, um, land to air uh, missiles. So you know this part was really, really, really very audacious. And we, uh, the, the the air force, is like you know it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a state between a state. They don't trust anybody. So in order to to <laughs> allow us to land their precious uh, planes with the precious uh, uh, crews inside enemy uh, territory they were they had to be sure that we could do it so that's why we did so so much uh, practice but it was okay i mean i didn't as as the head of the the commander of the team i i had no problem with that i said we will practice until you're happy with it, because uh, I, I can understand that you need the, to trust us, and you know, and it worked because there was never was some there was one or two situations, uh, uh, but not nothing that uh, concerned the 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 fact that we uh, choose the right places and we checked the the strength of the land. I mean, it's not the strength; it's the density. You know, we have to check it. Yes, and uh, every, you know, all those things. There was never any problem. Not, never a plane got stuck in the in the in the in the sand or something like that.
0: Now we've talked so, about the political situation of Sinai being handed back to the Egyptians during this extended period of the yeah. peace deal between Sadat and Begin in the late '70s, and of course. Mm-hmm the Middle East as it is, suddenly in 1982, Israel was plunged into war in Lebanon. More than once, you left your posting in Sudan to perform your national service, your annual miluim. Mm -hmm. So you motorbiked up the country up to Israel on your Kawasaki, to join your elite paratrooping unit to fight intensively against Syrian forces. You fought in a war north of Israel, literally days after your humanitarian mission in Sudan. How does a man deal with that, psychologically?
1: <laughs> when you when you say it, it looks like this guy is crazy.
0: It I sounds think. unbelievable.
1: Well, but that, that's very Israeli, you know. <laughs> you, you, uh, you, look. You have this thing, uh, okay. You're working for the Mossad, but uh, you know that's that's not does not replace uh, your man in the army. You, well, you're commanding people also in the army in your in your reserve period. There is a it's a it's a paratroopers uh, reserve uh, brigade. You, you know your people are waiting for you. They don't give a damn that you are in Sudan or or in Brazil or whatever. Well, they're expecting you to come and uh, and you feel that I knew one thing for sure that during the period that uh, we were fighting in Lebanon we would not benefit not from the bad Galim you know the the ship that uh, we worked with the uh, yes with the Navy seas and we would not get any transport planes to land in Sudan because everyone every single unit was busy in Lebanon. So the only thing that we could continue to do in Sudan was the sending people to Khartoum and from Khartoum with the passports, as you mentioned before. So that thing did not need me personally. There were people doing it very well. So I said, okay. I, you know, I left part of the team in the resort because the resort had to continue working. They don't care about any war. And uh, part of the team was gone. Went home, and I went uh, to Lebanon to to uh, join my unit. Because it's important with the red Kawasaki, as you said.
0: (laughs) With the red Kawasaki, which was a very rare motorbike to have in Israel, it's important to mention at this time that uh, Mossad officers are exempt from national service. But you didn't feel
1: that you Uh, should exclude uh, yourself. There were other, also others that uh, I, I when I came back from, from I was uh, I was uh, in 1973. I was uh, I was in Europe uh, working, uh, and I was with my wife and two daughters. No, one daughter. The other one was born later, and I when I came back and I participated in the 73 war, and I was I was not the only one. We were several Mossad guys that came back to. To to fight in the in the uh, Yom Kippur War, so you know there are some crazy people <laughs> everywhere.
0: And it was after that eighty-two war in Lebanon where you were fighting Syrian forces that uh, it was decided after a month of service in Lebanon that uh, you should take some time out. And uh, decompress from all the different related stresses of your two missions, and it was the time you perhaps realised you were missing your daughters growing up. There was a, a holiday in the south of France, and that changed your perspective yeah. somewhat. So you became slightly more aware of the family life that you were missing.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, that uh, you can you can say that. Yes, this, I spent the. Uh, a whole three weeks with my with my daughters, and uh, it was uh, yeah it was hard to go back, but I went back you know, and I continued another year and a half
0: and you lasted an incredible five years in your job in Sudan before you handed over command to your successor there's only so much I guess a man can take isn't there? You were becoming uh stale in the job that you had so much need to create and devise and mastermind that perhaps yes, it yes, needed yes. a fresh perspective to continue the mission in other persons hands
1: right this you know everyone has to feel and know when your time is up because if you if you um you push away this feeling that uh, you you know that you have to go to to the next uh, Mission, and then it will it, it will be felt, you know, because uh, uh, both uh, you you get uh, you know in order to be motivated in this type of um, of uh, of work, you you need especially when when you are in charge of something, you have to be creative. One of the worst enemies of this type of activity is routine. Mm-hmm. If you get caught into, or you fall into a routine, then you will be, you you fail. Everyone knows, most of people who are involved in this type of activity, they feel, they know when time is up. And you have to be honest enough to say it, because otherwise you're, you're actually undoing what you are doing.
0: <laughs> you called it a meaningful mission in a very beautiful essay towards the end of Raffi Berg's book, when the yeah. Lord brought back those that returned to Zion, we were as in a dream. Psalms, chapter yeah.
1: 126, verse
0: Shihamale. 1. Shia Very, very beautiful words. And every single page of Rafi Berg's book uh, is dramatic. But I guess that it's the book's truth that makes it still more dramatic. The words are scarcely believable, especially in that it is true to the word, isn't it? It's a great account of all the different stories, the different events, the threats, the this danger is, to life.
1: This is all a credit to, to Rafi because he, he actually did a very thorough work. I he, he didn't... Take anything for granted, and I told him by the way, when we first started talking don't you don't have to believe me <laughs> do no because you know so many years pass, sometimes you you might forget believe, certain details, you? yes yeah you might believe that what you're saying or you're telling is what actually happened but, uh, but you might think uh, but actually you know with the years uh, maybe you added something, maybe this or that, so um he, he checked everything, you know, and that—that that is what—that is why this book is very credible, and and uh, and everyone that reads it, and it be someone who knows the story, and there are many that read it that, you know, were part of the story, and be, be and or people that never heard about it, all they all come to the same thing is that is a very credible book, first of all. Then actually, is is a fantastic writer. I mean. He, it it reads like a, even for me when I read it is a, a page turner. You know, you, you, you want to know what is what is going to happen now.
0: Yes, it's a it's a very very good read. And at a similar time as Red Sea Spies by Raffi Berg uh, was released, a Netflix movie, Red Sea Diving Resorts, was released. Now that is yeah. um, a, more of a dramatic license. It's loosely based <laughs> on your story, but you are the common link between the Netflix movie and the book aren't you Danny
1: <laughs> Yeah well the 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 scriptwriter Gideon Ruff he actually asked me to help him uh, to write the the, the the you know the scenario and I uh, you know I told him the story not not so detailed as I did the to it. Uh, with Rafi, we, we spent really I don't know days and days and days. With uh, Gidon, it was, like, and he told me in advance that if I am going to judge the movie according to what really happened, I would be very disappointed. So he told me it's, in, it's only inspired by the facts, not based upon the facts. And so he played with it, you know. He uh, introduced many elements that were never never happened. And he changed things, but as you say, there is a there is some link. You know, the, for, for example, the relationship that he describes in the in the movie. One who is playing my my character, Chris Evans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 that relationship, uh, at least, uh, you know, he, 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 he put it on, on on the on the movie. It didn't go very deep, and it was. Actually, it was much deeper in, in, in the reality, but at least you you could see that there was a cooperation between the white Jews and the black Jews. And I spoke a lot with Chris Evans because I was invited to, to be on the set when they were making the movie. And I gave him the inside of the, of the story and he was very impressed, actually. At least it brought the story to the attention of... of, of you know of so of, many of, more people yeah yeah you know I, I I knew very well the head of the Mossad at the time it's Kofi, and and the character I mean the is the, 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 described in the in the movie is totally but totally opposite to what he was in reality, in reality <laughs> he was a very cool guy who never would curse who never would say you know he was always very, very, uh, how do you call calm. it? Calm. Yeah, very calm and very... Measured. Um, exactly. And then, you know, the character in the film is constantly uh, using the F word. The guy, Ben Kingsley, plays a Fray Alevi, not bad. Not bad. Because, uh, well, at least Ephraim Alevi uh, was born in, in Britain and, and Ben Kingsley, I don't know where he was born, but he, he can play a British uh, character.
0: When you consider the contribution that the children of these Ethiopian refugees have made to Israel, we think about in the last few days, Panina Tamano, the first Ethiopian-born Israeli to become a minister. In politics, the military, in the rabbinate, it, it just proves the absolute triumph of this mission because of the tens of thousands of Jews that were saved, there will be now... God willing, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of predecessors contributing in all manner of society in Israel.
2: Well, at the time of the operation, there were known to be about 36,000 Ethiopian Jews who were facing existential crisis. They, they, they could have uh, disappeared into history had they not been uh, brought to Israel. These days, there are 140,000 Ethiopian Jews in Israel. And this is a really important point that you raise. We often only hear about them when there's negative reports in the press. Uh, there certainly is uh, uh, incidents of discrimination uh, and uh, racism which is astonishing. Uh, we hear bad news, but what we don't hear about are the tremendous amount of success stories which accompany the Ethiopian Jews, especially the second generation. They've absolutely excelled in every single sphere of life. They've reached the pinnacle of academia, military, the police, the judiciary you name it, Ethiopian Jews have risen to the top, and as you just mentioned, they have just one of their members has just become the first ever. Ethiopian Jewish minister.
3: Now
0: for the five figure thousands of people you saved there are now six figure thousands of Ethiopian Jews making huge contributions to Israeli life and society from the rabbinate to the IDF um, into um, the work of nursing and medical staff and we now have uh, our first in a government Penina Tamano. That must make you feel Immensely proud when you think about uh, an Ethiopian uh, Jewish woman. You know, is able to rise up to the top of of Israeli society.
1: First of all, I know her. I know her since uh, um, before she she became a politician. She was a brilliant lawyer. So I'm I'm not very surprised that she reached that level to, to be a minister because we had we had already several. Uh, Knesset members, but the minister, this is the first time, and we have also a deputy minister, Gadi Yevarkan, whom I know also very well, and I I am in touch with him. We may, we do some projects together.
0: Which is wonderful, and of course, in this enlarged Netanyahu unity government with Benny Gantz, everyone gets a chance. To be a minister. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: that's, that's true, yeah.
0: <laughs> what took them, it's, you know, really, it should have been a whole lot faster. What took them this longest? Yeah, yeah, really. From an Ethiopian Jewish perspective, a shock enough to return to the land of Jerusalem, but then perhaps even more of a shock to be a minority within a minority. We're going to have to learn lessons about uh, Jewish values here, Rafi, and, uh, you know, everyone. everyone's the same. I find prejudice amongst Jewish people within Jewish communities... Absolutely appalling.
2: Yes. Uh look, Israel is the great leveller. Israel is no different to any in this respect to any other country in the world. There's racism in Israel. No more, no less than anywhere else, but it exists. And it's a paradox that a Jewish person can be racist towards another Jewish yeah. person, regardless of the colour of their skin. Yeah. Jews come from every corner of the world, and Ethiopian Jews are as jewish as i am as jewish as you are and they should be respected admired and embraced
0: well danny let me uh, add this phrase to you he who saves one life saves the world entire you saved many 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 worlds
1: yeah Uh, well you know i was part of this i am I, uh, there was a lot of people, lots of people were were involved in this, then both from the Israeli side and the Ethiopian Jewish side. And, uh, you know, uh, OK, I had the, the privilege of initiating and of uh, finding new ways and so on and so on. But the risk was uh, the risk was taken by everyone.
0: Yeah. So many glorious years later, you're retired, but you still keep in touch with many of the Ethiopian Jews and the children of those Ethiopian Jews that you saved. You're still very active amongst the Ethiopian Israeli community.
1: Well, yes, you know, I. Am, what can I tell you? Uh, they they have done a wonderful job, and in, in very difficult conditions to to, um, to integrate into the Israeli society, which is not very sympathetic and is not very uh, welcoming, you know, not only because they, they are of African origin, but I don't have to tell you what the, the, the Jews are. They're not perfect. They're far from being perfect. So, you know, I feel that this return of the Ethiopian Jews to Zion cannot be considered to be completed until they become part of the Israeli society completely, you know. The, the people forget the, the color of the skin. People should not judge anyone for his uh, external uh, aspect or something like that. And that's why I still am involved in that. And still they come. More
0: than 100 immigrants from Ethiopia... Landed in Israel earlier this month as Jerusalem continued to roll back coronavirus restrictions across the country. 119 more Ethiopian Jews flying out from Addis Ababa uh, made the journey to their new homeland, marking the second time members of Beta Israel are allowed to move to Israel since the outbreak of the pandemic. So, you know, in the sense that integration is one matter for the generation that arrived. Um, several decades ago, still there are challenges, Danny.
1: Yeah, look, it will... uh, I'm not involved in the question of the immigration uh, because uh, as long as I feel that they need me or that I can do uh, something for them, I will continue, you know. The end of this amazing Arus
0: hotel resort story is as dramatic as every single page, isn't it? But I'm not going to reveal it here, but just sort of give us a background to how it might end. What's going on in the rider? Yeah.
2: I'll give you a taster because you're right, it's tricky to talk about without revealing the dramatic conclusion. (laughs) But with all good stories, it has a fantastic ending, which is almost too unbelievable... (laughs) To be true, but it happened. There was a revolution in Sudan. The regime was overthrown. And word reached Mossad HQ that the presence of their agents in Sudan had been compromised. And they decided they were going to have to evacuate the village very quickly. Get their guys out of there before it was too late. Now, this happened during Easter time. Like, Easter time, the hotel was jam-packed with guests so the agents couldn't just abandon the place because they'd be seen and questioned and stopped so they had to wait for an opportune moment to disappear yes and it's you've got to read the book to find out how they did it how they pulled it off but it's sensational well the book is absolutely amazing by
0: Raffi Berg, Red Sea Spies, the true story of Mossad's fake holiday resort, an adventure à la
2: carte, uh, which is an understatement. Well, that's the way the Mossad themselves described it on one of their advertising brochures. They printed them by the thousands. Yeah. And they advertised it as unique in all the world, and quite frankly, it certainly was.
0: <laughs> Both Faraday Aklum and Zimna Barhane, the Ethiopian Jewish heroes of this story, are no longer with us. As a postscript to this episode, Danny discusses with great humanity the honour they deserve as part of this story. Now, tragically, he passed away uh, in 2009 on a trip to Addis Ababa. But he's very much a national hero to the Ethiopian Jewish community and the Mossad honoured him by bringing his body home and there were many Mossad representatives at his funeral...
1: Faraday, yes, he, he died, collapsed actually in a street in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. And his son, was with him, the first person he called was me. I mean, eleven o'clock at night, he called me totally in total despair. And well, I am not going to tell, to to say to tell the whole story how we brought his body to how we found his body. First of all, because Problem in Addis, they didn't have a, a, a real morgue, you know, they didn't have, a, uh, they couldn't uh, freeze the bodies. So it was, if someone that was brought to the hospital and uh, dead already, they would uh, they would actually put him in a side room with air conditioning with other bodies because there are, you know, people die in the streets in Addis Ababa is nothing uh, uh, strange. So they had a, a room full of bodies and the son was totally incapable of taking care of anything. So actually the person who took care of everything was Zimna Berhano, who was, as I told you before, the one who replaced Ferde in, in Sudan. So I called the Zimna and I told him, look, Ferde died and he's in a hospital. If, they, if some, nobody reclaims the body, so the authorities, they bury those bodies in a in a in a common grave, and then go look for them, you know. So I, uh, uh, Zimnow was not a young man anymore at the time. Went to the hospital, and he had, you know, he had to really look for the body of Faraday. You know, these these rooms they have a very low uh, electricity. You, you don't see almost anything. So he once described to me the whole thing how. How he had to turn one body after the other, until he found Faraday who was naked. All of them were naked, and he had to carry him in his arms, and he had to bring him to a private place with a freezer, and and then I arranged through the through the Mossad headquarters that he will receive all the. Um, assistance that he needed from the embassy, Israeli embassy in Addis, put him in a flight from uh, Addis to Tel Aviv. I went to the airport to look for the body, and then we made a really, um, uh, you know, the, everything was uh, arranged by us, a burial. There were three ex-Mossad heads. Fraim Alevi made a, a-, a, a eulogy. Speech. Eulogy, and I made a eulogy, and um, yeah, that's approximately it.
0: Yet another emotional story, a very human story. Um, yeah. The whole, the whole of this chapter of your life is, you about, is incredible.
1: Just before we, we, we yes. say goodbye, and I'm going to the to the shul about Zimna, Zimna Berhanu He also died about five years ago. He uh, he had a cancer, and he was uh, when he was in a terminal state, and he knew he was going to die in a question of days. We arranged to take him by ambulance to a big um, uh, student hall in the University of Barilan, where five or 600 people came to say goodbye to Zimna. He was on the podium, you know, lying in his hospital bed because there is a special ambulance who performs that. He asked me to arrange there will be officers in the IDF, both men and women in the first row. So, I mean, in his final days, he, he saw the result of his life work and he went away you know at least uh, with this uh, feeling that uh, he really had contributed uh, something to the future of this country, to the security of the country. He was so proud. yeah, I wanted to tell you that because this is something I know I think I, I never told anybody.
0: Danny, I just want to thank you so much for speaking to me in such detail with such humanity and being so incredibly modest and I want to say I'm sure on behalf of every listener kol hakavod and thank you for your service not just to Israel but also to the Jewish people entire okay
1: thank you and uh, well uh, we have uh, Shavuot coming Chag Sameach
0: Chag Sameach the Megillah Danny.
1: <laughs> yeah, Megillat
0: Ruth. <root. laughs> yeah, it's the Megillat yeah. route, exactly, exactly. Ephraim Halevi, Mossad's director between 1998 and 2002, also told Rafi about the farewell event for Zimna on the podium lying on his portable hospital bed. He actually got emotional recalling it to Rafi. Zimna beckoned him to come closer and whispered in his ear. And the two men embraced and Zimna cried. "'You remember the meeting I had with you when I was in that compound in Khartoum?' he asked in a whisper. "'Yes, I remember,' replied Halevi. "'You were God to me,' Zimna told him. "'Zimna, you mustn't speak like that,' replied Halevi. "'No, you must understand,' responded Zimna. "'For us, you were God.' Halevi, a characteristically stoic man, would later describe being extraordinarily touched by those words." like a bolt of lightning going through you, he said. We were not God, of course, but these people, they entrusted us with their lives. I think they didn't understand for a moment the risks that they themselves were taking. Rafi dug out that conversation, which was in the first draft of the book, but he had to cut it out of the final version that you will read when you buy it. This podcast was made just before the festival of Shavuot, Shavuos, commemorating the giving of the Torah to the Jewish people, and on the day Danny observed Shloshim, the 30th and final day of the deep mourning process for the loss of a family member, in Danny's case, his father. In fact, we recorded our interview before and after he went to synagogue to say Kadesh, the mourner's prayer. I wish you and your family a long life, Danny. I am indebted to both Raffi Berg and Danny, who made this episode one of the most moving of Johnny Gould's Jewish state so far. Thank you, Rafi. Todaraba Dani. And this episode is dedicated to Kasai Cohen and Kidan Cohen.
3: Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State And be first to hear the next show by subscribing now Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review That really helps bring more listeners to the show